Welcome to the podcast. I'm Duncan CJ. You're listening to Happiness. This is episode 144. Our mission is for every man, woman and child to be empowered with the knowledge of how to be happy. The goal of this show is to introduce you to the people and the ideas that will help you live truly fulfilling lives. Today I'm speaking with Mark Wolin. Director and founder of Family Constellation Institute in San Francisco, Mark is a world leader in the field of inherited family trauma. A best-selling author and a sought-after lecturer, he teaches at hospitals, clinics and universities around the world, including the University of Pittsburgh, JFK University and the Western Psychiatric Institute. His book, It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle, is the winner of the 2016 Silver Nautilus Book Award in Psychology and has been translated into 19 languages. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Duncan. I'm happy to be here today. In the book, there were so many amazing examples and case studies, and I want to jump straight in with one about a study conducted on 38 women who were pregnant during the attack on 9-11. What did that study show? Yeah, so the, the women who were pregnant um, when the World Trade Center was attacked, and when they went on to have PTSD, so did their children. So the women who were pregnant um, carried babies that were smaller for their gestational age. They were affected by the trauma. Not only that, that they, they also had 16 different gene, genetic markers, um, that genes that expressed differently than children who weren't born to pregnant mothers at the World Trade Center. So, you know, basically this is in line with all the types of studies we're seeing right now, um, where, uh, a trauma happens. And it changes us. Literally, it causes a chemical change in our DNA. And this will change the way our genes will express for generations, um, literally, in us, in our children, and even in our grandchildren. Technically, what happens is a trauma happens, and it causes a, um, an experience inside our cells. You know, the, there'll be a, what we'll call a chemical tag or an epigenetic tag that attaches to the DNA. And because of this terrible thing that just happened, it tells the cells hey, we need to use this gene to provide us more stability, more security, more safety, and not use this. In other words, there's a selection going on. The DNA is, in a sense, telling the cells to use or ignore certain genes to help us survive. And then the way the genes are affected will change how we act or feel. For example, we can become uh, reactive or sensitive to a situation that's reminiscent of a trauma, whether we know this situation or this trauma or not, it's already living inside of us. So even if it occurred in a past generation and we have no information about it, we're affected. Uh, if our grandparents come from a, a war-torn country and there's bombs going off and bombings, bullets flying, people being lined up in the street, uniformed men taking people away, shooting shooting our relatives, our family members, um, our grandparents would develop a skill set. They would uh, develop an adaptation to help them survive. And that skill set could be, let's say, sharper reflexes, quicker reaction times, reactions to the violence to help them survive this event. But here we are, a generation or two later, born in the suburbs, reacting to a car backfiring or or a loud sound or policemen in uniforms or you know people in a crowd and having this war reaction our grandparents trauma reaction in other words here we are acting as though 
a, a catastrophe could happen at any minute. The way I like to describe it is not only do we inherit the skill set, but we also in- inherit a, a stress response with the dials set to 10, maybe even 11 if it's a Fender amplifier, you know, set, you know, set to 11. But, but here they are prepared for a catastrophe that, that never, never arrives. What's interesting about that example is because when you hear the word trauma, you often think, and for good reason, that it's a negative adaptation. But with the war example, it was having sharper reflexes. This this was like this was an amazing um, an amazing uh, ability to have during that context. But then fast forward when you're out of that context, it's it's now it's maladaptive. So it's it what was once helpful for you is now um, harmful. So it's not necessarily just trauma, bad, bad, bad. It, it was once potentially beneficial on some of these things, that example. There's brand new research coming out of Australia right now that people who recover from post-traumatic stress disorder, they, they can have positive physiologic responses, um, such as what they call post-traumatic growth or resilience. And, and this is exciting news, really, because you know we don't just see the negative effects of trauma, but in general, mostly, we're experiencing this adaptation unbeknownst to us. And here we are, reactive and never really quite understanding why we're reactive, why we have these destructive behaviors, why we have these um, feelings or situations in a crowd, or, or why we go to have children and feel like we could harm our child without realizing our grandmother felt guilty for uh, a baby that didn't live, or feelings, you know, we move across town and all of a sudden we sink into a depression without realizing that our ancestors were maybe forced out of their homeland or persecuted. And all we did was had the trigger of moving across town and all of a sudden it enacted something deeper in us, something unbeknownst to us. Um, I talk about this a lot about the signs uh, of inherited trauma. You know, we, we can go along our life um, easily until we hit a certain event, milestone, or age. For example, uh, let, let's call it age 30. And at age 30, this is when grandma became a widow and never married again and stayed alone. And then our parents, without making the connection, that they were affected by their mother's disconnect from her partner, they begin to separate or divorce around 2930. And then in the next generation, we look at our partner and at that age, and we go and we think she or he just doesn't do it for me anymore, um, not realizing we're connected with something much larger. Uh, so it can be an age, it can be an event like I talked about, moving across town, um, going to have a baby. Here's one, going into relationship. I, I worked with um, this, these three sisters in my book, all of whom uh, were either Lebanese or Iraqi, I forget. Um, and the one sister loves this man she marries. She thinks it's, he's the greatest guy in the world. But as soon as she's married, she feels incredibly trapped. And she doesn't understand it because she loves him. And so she comes to work with me and um, she goes, I, I don't understand it. This, I, I love my husband, but I just feel so trapped and I'm starting to shrink and get depressed. And when we looked at the trauma in her family, both grandmothers 
had been given away as child brides, one at nine and one at 12, to much older men. Um, and they lived these loveless, trapped, unhappy lives, um, married to these much older men. And, you know, they, it wasn't it wasn't in their in, in their scrapbook. It wasn't in their dream book. Um, so what ended up happening is she the trigger for her is was getting married. What was interesting is I worked with her two sisters. The one sister married a much older man, 30 years older, like the grandmother. And then the third sister would never get married lest she be trapped. So, you know, we don't even think of it, Duncan. We don't even realize it, how we can be affected um, by traumas. Um, we just go along until something happens and then we're living with a, a mystery that we can't explain. Just so interesting. One lady who... Um... I heard you talk about with claustrophobia and then realized that um, her grandparents had been in the concentration camps. And another one where you're saying that if after our grandmother gets married, suddenly a great catastrophe strikes, then that could form an imprint on the cellular memory of the family. And therefore, marriage equals death or marriage equals destruction. Just like you said, it casts an imprint that we're unaware of of until we've stepped into this situation. We got married, we go to have a child, we leave home for the first time, we get rejected. And all of a sudden, I mean, you know, we might have been dating a person for two, three months, but the, the breakup um, takes us to a deeper rejection, perhaps a break in the attachment with our mom, or, or a deeper break in the family where people lost family members. And we don't know that. We just think, oh, I can't live without this person. I don't need, you know, but it's not that person. So these events, as you said, they, there's an imprint and it casts a, a deeper residue, a deeper, almost reservoir of information begins to arise when we step into one of these, I'm going to call it a pothole, but it's just an event. But we sink deep down into this reservoir of feelings, of, uh, of sensations, of really trauma responses, because what we're inheriting is a trauma response. So to go back to the science, you know, the, the DNA tells the cell to use or ignore certain genes based on the trauma so we can survive. And then um, the genes are expressing in a way to help protect us. And this gene expression is what's heritable. So basically, we're inheriting our grandmother's or our father's or our mother's or our grandfather's stress response to a situation that we didn't even live through. But the response to it lives in us. You know, you brought up um, in the book, I talked about the woman who um, was claustrophobic and she didn't understand it. It happened, um, her, her dad, uh, as soon as her dad died. Now, when her dad, a Holocaust survivor, was 19, um, his, I, I forget the whole story now, but it's in the book. But I think all of the members of his family died in gas chambers. And the triggering event was the death of her father. So as soon as her father dies, now she is terrified of uh, being in an airplane, um, on a bridge, um, you know, anywhere where she feels that she can't breathe, uh, uh, particularly on an airplane. As soon as they close the, um, uh, the, the door to the airplane, she's horrified and terrified and couldn't make the connection till we linked it. Why is it so important for us to express our fears with words, to write them down, to speak to them? Why, why is that so important? Thank you. I love that question. Um, 
Because, you know, I spend a, a, a large part of the book teaching us to become detectives, detectives of our trauma language. And that language is verbal and nonverbal. When it's verbal, you know, I'm interested in, you know, you said the word fear, which is good. It's one of my questions. In the book, I ask people to describe, um, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? What's your worst fear? If things suddenly fell apart, if things went terribly wrong, what, what's, the, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? And, and people will give answers like this. I'll be abandoned. I'll be hated by my family or the people closest to me. I'll be ostracized. I'll be sent away like our parents who were sent to boarding school. Um, I'll be, um, uh, I'll, I'll go crazy. I'll be locked up like the grandmother's sister that was put in an institution. Um, I'll harm somebody. I'll do something terrible. I'll harm a child like our grandfather who backed out of the driveway and ran over the little boy on a tricycle. Um, in other words, we have, when we answer that question, uh, what's your worst fear? We get two types of language. One is generational. I'll give you generational language. And one is attachment language. Generational language sounds like this. I'll do something terrible. I'll harm someone. Uh, I'll, I won't deserve to live. And you ask people, what did you do? And they'll say, nothing. But then you ask about someone in the family and who felt they didn't deserve to live? Who did something terrible? And they go, oh, my grandfather, he, and they tell the whole story. So this is generational trauma language. And then there's attachment trauma language. I'll be rejected. I'll be abandoned. I'll be left. Uh, I won't exist. I won't matter. Um, and when you look at this two types of language, just from hearing the answer to the worst fear, you can get at what type of trauma that we're about to uncover to help the client heal the destructive behaviors. So that's the verbal trauma language. But Duncan, there's this nonverbal trauma language as well. And, and that's when you follow the stream of uh, destructive behaviors, anxieties, depressions that show up after one of these events. For example, everything is fine until we get married. And then or we hit a certain age, or we go to have a child, or we get rejected by a partner, or we move, or um, we witness a car wreck, or we uh, feel we've hurt somebody, or what? Or we, our best friend leaves us for other best friends when we're 13. Whatever it is, these are generally the triggering events that bring our symptoms, our depressions, our anxieties, our destructive behaviors, our self-sabotaging behaviors, our self-injurious behaviors, into light. And so the events that precede them are really, really important because they give the idea, of, it's following, as I said, the stream of nonverbal trauma language. So our symptom picture, when the symptom started, what preceded it, what, what, what's it like in its worst moments, what happens right before we get these migraines? What happens right before we go to cut, um, cut ourselves? What happens right before we sink into these depressions? That's the trail of nonverbal trauma language. It makes sense, right? Totally. Verbal yeah, and nonverbal. These, these are the breadcrumbs yeah. that you're talking about. 
Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I talk about that in the book. I, I teach the reader to become a detective yeah. of, of this breadcrumb trail that we're constantly leaving. You know, so I slow it down. I say, okay, you've, you're opening this book and you want to work with your anxiety or you want to work with why you spend all your money on, at the racetrack or whatever you do. Um, so let's break it down. Let me ask you these questions. Let's open, you know, let's open the curtain a little bit and look behind the curtain and, 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 and look a little deeper and see when this started, what happened right before, what's it like in its worst moments? What, what am I afraid the most afraid will happen to me? Um, et cetera, et cetera. I have a list as you know, in I think chapter six or something, the 12 questions of the core complaint. And, you know, when you ask yourself these questions, you really do become a detective of your own stuff, um, which can lead you to linking it to, which is the second part of the book, linking it to, you know, what happened in your family history by doing your traumagram, your, your, gene, your genogram. And then the last part of the book, of course, I'm teaching us what to do, how to have these positive experiences that can change our brain. If we start going on the hunt for trauma, if we look through our family history, if we think about all the things that trigger us, do you think there's ever a danger of finding trauma that sometimes isn't there? Is that like, is that a risk or do you think that's like a really low risk? I'm, I'm a believer that traumas repeat when people stay silent. Mm. Um, that, that silence is not the best method for immunizing us against repeating trauma. Um, I'm a believer that grandparents and parents should tell their children and grandchildren the things that happen so we can understand why we wear this heavy coat and we can have a hook on which to hang it. Because uh, I think it's better to know than not know. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the word post-traumatic growth earlier. I'm, I'm imagining that if we have these fears, if we have these triggers and suddenly finding out okay, there's actually trauma behind it. I think for, for, for many people, that information would be liberating. It would suddenly give, um, it would make sense to their pain and you could grow from it. Have you noticed a difference between the characteristics of the qualities of people who find their pain and then they can grow from it versus, okay, this is ammunition to then blame my parents, my grandparents, and it being a source of, I don't know. I, I don't like the word victim, but like a source of um, where they get stuck. What, what's the difference between the people who can use their pain and then be like, this is a liberating thing versus this is now 10 years worth of ammunition where I'm going to get stuck in this place and just point the finger? It's a good question. You know, you, we can, two of us can have the same liberating session, meaning that we can uncover uh, the trauma. We can link it, link it to our destructive behaviors and then um, the question is, is one person does his personal work and the other person um, do, is too afraid to go inside and sit with what's uncomfortable in the body until we can um, be liberated, really, until we can find what's underneath. So, you know, I, I think we're in, in the area right now in our conversation where we're talking about how we heal yeah. and some of the factors that, that allows to heal. There's some really good science out there right now. So scientists have, uh, researchers are now able to reverse trauma symptoms in, in mice. 
in mice. And the reason we use mice is because humans and mice share a similar genetic makeup. Over 93% of the genes in, in mice and humans are similar. Um, very similar, 80% are identical. So we can find, we can cause adversity to mice by maybe separating them from their mothers and bringing them back and seeing the effects. But we see the effects for three generations. And then we can extrapolate and um, uh, understand humans more by looking at the behaviors of mice. And now they're able to reverse trauma symptoms in mice by creating positive experiences. And th this is where I'd like to go in this discussion right now, Duncan, because yeah, I think I this, is, this is where it's liberating. Sure. Um, um, so positive experiences, when the mice are exposed to it, actually changes the DNA. It changes the way it expresses. Technically, it inhibits the enzymes that cause DNA methylation and histone modifications. These are um, pathways of, 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 of epigenetics. They're mechanisms of epigenetics. Um, so if they take the mice, traumatize them, and they see a behavior like depression in mice, unsocial behavior in the mice, then if they take the same mice, but they put them in a, a positive environment, their trauma symptoms reverse, their behaviors improve. The changes in the DNA, cha there's changes in the DNA that prevent the symptoms from being transmitted to the next generation. Um, the epigenetic signature is changed, if you will. And, um, and uh, you know, forget mice. Mice aren't the only one who benefit from positive experiences. How we heal from inherited trauma. You know, we've got to calm the brain's stress response, whether we've inherited it from our mom or dad, or something happened to us when we were small. So to heal, we've got to change our brain. We've got to, uh, for me, what that looks like is I might be in a session with somebody and we've uncovered the trauma, uh, we, we've done, we're, now we're doing the deep work and we've got to hit on a practice and then uh, something that's meaningful, salient, relevant, potent, um, that the client will take in deeply, trust, and then practice. For example, um, um, I often say we've got to practice the new feelings and the new sensations, new feelings, new sensations associated with this positive experience. Because when we do this, it'll stimulate the release of feel-good neurotransmitters in our brain, like dopamine and serotonin and GABA, or, or actually stimulate the release of feel-good hormones like estrogen or, or, or oxytocin. But it is also changes how the genes express. So a positive experience can be receiving comfort, feeling this feeling of being comforted by um, our parents in real life or spiritual um, image or, or um, uh, joining some group where there's comfort. It can be an experience of receiving support. It can be um, letting ourselves feel sensorily, viscerally, feelings of compassion in our body, feelings of gratitude, um, uh, feelings of loving kindness, practicing mindfulness, ultimately anything that allows us to feel strength or peace or joy inside our bodies because these types of experiences feed the prefrontal cortex and can help us reframe the stress response so it is a chance to downregulate. The idea is to find a practice that will allow us to enter a different part of our brain and get out of a different part of our brain. For example, um, to, uh, 
when we're stuck in the trauma response, the limbic brain, when we're stuck here, we can't be in the limbic brain and the prefrontal cortex at the same time. It's an either-or situation. You're either in your limbic repetitions, your limbic brain, key, you know, your 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 amygdala's firing out these trauma um, signals, um, alarm signals to the alarm towers of the body, saying, "Uh-oh, this person in a dark." suit just entered your home tighten leave your body shut down withdraw and and that's the amygdala firing its warning signals because and it's in charge until we start to find something that can compete with it which are these positive experiences um and live more in the forebrain our prefrontal cortex um where we can integrate these new experiences and our brains can change you know, basically, to, to put it in a nutshell, because I talked about this earlier, we need to practice being with, first, what's uncomfortable in our body, which would be tighten, leave, shut down, withdraw, to just be with it until we can reach beneath that. Um, sensations in our body, which do live beneath that, which we experience as life-giving. Sensations like pulsing, pulsing. Um, tingling, expanding, softening, spreading, opening, dropping. You know, we all have something different. You know, when we do our mindfulness practices, you know, uh, we all we all feel something different. But even if it's tuning into the sensation of our blood flowing, or our heart beating, or the pulses in our body, or letting ourselves feel waves of energy or warmth. You know, if I'm working with someone and somebody can feel warmth in the body, I might say, let's open the door there and go right into that warmth and stay right in the center of it as though there's no Duncan, there's just this feeling of warmth. And just actually to just be physically, viscerally inside the sensation of warmth, what's happening now? And Duncan may say, well, there's a feeling of expanding. Let's follow that or just really be the feeling of expanding because that's really is what's beneath the uncomfortable sensations. So you asked me this question, who heals, who doesn't, who becomes a victim and who becomes somebody who takes charge of his or her own, her own life. The person who go in and stay with what's uncomfortable until it melts, until it um, begins to turn into something life-giving, this person heals. The person who says, oh, I don't want to do that. My parents did this to me. Life did this to me. Society did this to me. They, they have a different response. So, you know, I, I tell people we need to spend at least a minute, six times a day, in this sensation of this mm-hmm. visceral sensation of expansion or pulsing or heart beating or body softening or belly going soft, whatever it is for us. That can be enough to change the brain and calm the stress response. But the main thing, I'm going to say just one more sentence. The main thing is we take time to create positive experiences that can change our brain. We take the time to do it. I think you used the example of, um, you know, the kids scared of, you know, the monster under the bed. Turn the lights on and look under the bed. You know, that's scary. But by actually turning and facing what is our biggest fear, what is it actually loses its it loses its power by turning towards it. Absolutely, uh, you know, I, I, I many of us have attachment trauma from this life, meaning us with our mum, or 
we carry our mom's attachment trauma with her mom or our dad's attachment trauma with his mom. So if, if you look at it, there's three possible streams of why we feel this great loneliness inside, why we feel, why, and I mean most of us, feel this great aloneness, this great loneliness, and we want to run from it. We want to get on our phone and like something, like somebody, have somebody like us on social media, because they've discovered you get dopamine hits, because dopamine was missing in the bond. Either our bond with our mom, our mom's bond with her mom, or dad's bond. Remember, three generations is heritable. So we don't know whose trauma we're carrying, really. But we do know that in our own bodies, we shrink from these feelings of terror that live inside of us. And when, just as you said, when we turn to face them, when we say, okay, terror, terror, I want to get to know you. I want to live, I want to not run and drink and smoke and exercise and call somebody on the phone, go on social media, watch TV, binge on Netflix, whatever we do. Um, uh, instead of doing something we impulsively that we um, takes us away from the self, instead we go toward the self and be with what's uncomfortable until it begins to open into what we feel as friendly life-giving, opening, and stay with that. You know, I'm going to say something on this podcast with you here that I, I don't generally say, but I'm going to say people who heal, they're not attached to the outcome. I'm only doing this to heal my migraines. They do it because it feels right, because it feels right inside to do. They don't attach to an outcome. They do the practice because it just feels right. What is one thing our listeners can start doing today? If you had to give them a bit of homework that everyone can act on, what would you say? I could say a hundred things. One is tell about, tell your children about the traumas in your family history. Um, you know, the more your kids know, the, the more they'll breathe, the more they'll begin to relax because inside them, they know of the same tightening that you know. They know of the same uh, sort of, you know, a lot of people come to me and say, we have a family curse. I want to work with the family curse. It's not a family curse. It's a, it's a trauma that no one's spoken about. It's a trauma that no one's willing to look at because um, somebody hurt somebody. Somebody was hurt. So talk about the traumas. You know, in a, in a, in a way, shake the family tree and see what falls out. You know, what stories didn't get told? What secrets were kept, you know, what family secrets are there? What, what traumas never healed all the way? Um, because the more we can open this up and let it breathe, the more our children um, can thrive, really. It's that simple. The more our children can thrive. You know, I, I, I say this thing, you know, um, inherited trauma um, is, is a biological truth. It's, <clears throat> it, you know, it, it exists, but it doesn't have to be our destiny. You know, we can heal. We can change our brain. I want to give everyone a chance to find out more about you, go to your website. Um, what are the best links to markwoland.com? I'm going to link that up underneath the, uh, under the interview. Great. Yeah, that'll do it. And, and of course, all the social media. Absolutely. And just the awareness that 
trauma can get passed down generation to generation. Just just that alone can be, and I'm sure it will be for a lot of people, that's like a paradigm shifting moment and realization, which can be hugely liberating. So Mark, thank you so much for the work you do. Thank you for coming onto the podcast. Thank you for saying yes and answering all my questions. It was a, it was a really interesting one to research and I'm grateful for you just, yeah, sharing your wisdom. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Duncan. It was actually fun. <laughs> actually. <laughs> well, you know, you do, you do a gazillion podcasts and, and, and some, you know, when you get um, an interviewer who's tapped in and um, keyed in like you are, it's actually a lot of engaging, fun conversations. So thank you. Thank you for that. Happiness.info